This is a conspiracy. That's what this is. One big damn conspiracy! And everyone's in on it! I know what's going on. Did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Did you see the memo about this? Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. Don't you see what this means? Welcome to episode 34 of your Missing the Point podcast, where we discuss the weird, the wonderful, and the damn right bizarre aspects of life, as we have conversations with people from all over the world. Today, I'm joined by a woman who's been brave enough to look into the darkness and see what's staring back. An experiencer of sleep paralysis, she's been driven by her love of research to peer through the veil and write about what's happening with this bizarre phenomenon. A woman grounded in her biblical understanding and education, author of They Only Come Out Night, Vicky Joy Anderson. Welcome, Vicky. Hey, Drew, thanks for having me on. Fantastic. I'm so great that you could come on and, and chat about this stuff because I myself am actually an experience of, of this very strange phenomenon, and I'm hoping this will give me some kind of clarity and understanding of what's happened in my own life. Wow. Yeah, well, I'm anxious to hear about that, Drew. Everybody's story is a little bit the same and a little bit different, and every time I hear someone's story, I, I learn something new as well. So I'm finding out it's... um. It's very, it's a strange phenomenon. It seems to have links with what you would consider to be the abductee alien UFO type of phenomenon. Um, yes. It can be linked back to like medieval incubus and succubus type of events. And then there's the stereotypical shadow person in the room, the entity watching you as you're, as you're asleep and can't move. But yes, like you said, there's a, there's a common thread that seems to be along all of these, but they all seem to be a, some kind of a, their own entity in itself or their own experiences. Yeah. Yep. There's a few common, um, you know, usual suspects as I like to call them, you know, people will talk about the shadow people, the hat man, the incubus, the succubus, the old hag. And then we even hear a lot where there's, uh, I I've heard this one a lot, a rocking chair with an old woman in the corner of the room the black mist that tends to be on the ceiling, the darker than darkness kind of shadows, the red glowing eyes, and of course, the uh, alien greys. Yeah. So what I was hoping we could do is, for the, my listeners who may not actually be familiar with this subject, what I thought we'd do is we'd get a bit of a, a brief outline of how you got into all of this stuff, how you started your research, and then we could kind of brush over what sleep paralysis is for those people who may not have heard it before. Sure, absolutely. Well, even though I've wanted to be a writer since I was about 10 years old, I mean, that ever since fifth grade, I knew that's what I wanted to do. But I certainly never thought I'd be writing on fringy topics or sleep paralysis. Uh, sleep paralysis was actually something I never talked to anyone about. I started experiencing it when I was uh, at a very young age, too young to even really know what was going on. But because I was raised in, in a Christian home, I, I mean, 
obviously when you're three and four years old, there's only so much you really understand about the, the, the spiritual battle going on. But I had a couple key words, you know, I knew God, Jesus, and the devil, right? And uh, I knew about angels. And I, I don't think I necessarily would have known what spiritual warfare was or meant at that age, but I think I knew there were good guys and bad guys, you know, and uh, that they were, uh, you know, trying to outmatch one another. Because every Sunday school story you hear, even when you're a kid, it, it's this chess match going on between the two dudes, you know, I mean, that so that part I understood even at four years old. And so even though I would articulate these experiences to my mom as though it was a bad dream even at a very young age I knew it was something spiritual and that's because they gave it away I didn't come up with that and I, I wasn't superimposing my worldview on that or my parents didn't supply that explanation for me when creatures come into your room and say we're going to drag you to hell. Jesus can't help you. How do you conclude anything other than the fact that this is something spiritual? I mean, indigestion and narcolepsy and sleep apnea don't come with Grim Reaper people threatening your life and your soul. So it's pretty hard when you've actually been through it to ignore or overwrite that aspect you know it, it's easy for the scientists and the physicians and and all the official narratives who are writing little copy paste you know subjective journalism articles online about it to kind of poo poo all that but even atheists and agnostics and muslims that i have spoken to who have had this experience will stray from their worldview vernacular and start Without even being aware of it, they will automatically, they'll instinctively, without even realizing it as they're telling the story, they're saying evil, they're saying soul, and they're saying demon. Those three words come up all the time, regardless of a person's uh, religious beliefs. It's almost instinctual when this happens that someone's soul feels threatened. It's the theme that kind of continues to come up. Yeah, it's it's a situation where, like you said, people who do have uh, some kind of a grounding in a faith or a religion or a theology, they have something to draw on. But in this day and age, there's so many people out there who don't actively follow any kind of a faith or religion that it's a simple go-to that sleep paralysis is the the air quotes science idea of you have some kind of sleep apnea and you're you're having fluttering in your sleep and it's just all your subconscious trying to understand the stimuli around you as you're trying to sleep. But I think it's a lot deeper than that, especially through my own experiences. So what would you say to the mainstream science explanation for this phenomena? Because it seems to be a bit of a throwaway explanation because they don't even seem to understand it themselves. Yeah. So I, I kind of unpack this in the first chapter of my book. I truly believe my my wish is that the the scientists and the physicians and the pastors and the preachers and the theologians would all get together at the same table and exchange notes that this is so compartmentalized an issue that if you go to science you get a 
scientific method, rational explanation. If you go to the physicians, you get a medical um, solution. And if you go to the pastors, you tend to get one of two responses, though there are people out there that are aware of what's going on. But if you're spiritual and you go to your pastor for counseling, you'll you'll typically get one of two responses. You will be completely gaslit and told that there must be some sort of unconfessed sin in your life that you're not willing to admit to. You've opened this door. You've invited this. What have you done? Now let's explore you know, what, what you've done to open these doors. Did you play with the Ouija board? Are you cheating on your spouse? That sort of thing. And the, the opposite then reaction is the, it's a demon. It's a hundred percent a demon. There, there's no other explanation for it whatsoever. And it's more complicated than that because um, there are also physiological aspects to this. There can be militarized aspects to this there can be ancestral aspects to this it's not simply always and only that a demon's in your house and so my my goal is like when i wrote the book the demographic i had in mind when i wrote it is people like me who have gone through this their whole life and they're trying to figure out what's going on and why is it going on why are they attaching to me why can't i get rid of these things but as I get further and further down the path and I talk to more and more people and I realize how many thousands of people are dealing with this, I really wish that this book would make its way into pastoral libraries and church libraries and into the hands of youth group leaders and pastors. Because I've talked to so many people who have gone to their pastors and they are, they're left feeling shamed, rejected. Uh, they kind of feel like the pastor looks down on them from that point forward, or they get sent off to go and talk to a therapist or a psychologist or a hypnotherapist, or, or they're being sent out into the world for the world to figure it out. And so I really wish that as more disclosure unfolds and as more Christians start to talk about this, because that's that's really the myth, Drew, is that this happens to people who are dabbling in the occult. And this happens to people who are doing ayahuasca trips and playing with Ouija boards. And, you know, oh, Satan can't bother a Christian. And what's really the reality is just as many, if not more Christians are being hounded by this because it's a part of part of it is an aspect of spiritual warfare. And the enemy is going to attempt to wear out the saints or in some cases with a lot of people I've talked to, this can also be a grooming process where there's a lot of Christians out there who are very strong in their faith, wide awake with all of their defenses and their armor on. They're not going to fall for the regular stupid things they're not going to become an alcoholic. They're not going to hang out in bars. They're not going to go to the strip clubs. They're, they're going to steer clear of these places. But what happens, because this is such a subtle thing, is if you are unwittingly being pulled into the astral realm or various dimensional portals in the dream world while you're asleep and you wake up and you think it's just a dream or you don't even remember what you dreamt or where you were, what a lot of people are experiencing in these astral uh, 
episodes are what we would call in the waking world a, a, a grooming process. And Christians are being exposed to very Christian and very spiritual sounding doctrine, which is actually just new age and theosophical repackaged ideas. And because their emotions are so tied up into these experiences and they wake up filled with love and light and joy and feelings like they've never felt and they saw beautiful angelic things and they floated up to heaven and all this coupled with those emotional experiences they aren't testing the spirits to recognize that they are subtly being preached a gospel other than the one being preached and a lot of the spiritual transformations that are happening in the life of christians who have had sleep paralysis their whole life is that they are getting slowly dragged down a path and are are following very aberrant the, theologies. I really love how you you touched on that all these different schools of thought on this the phenomenon need to come to the table and try and work this out together because I think it's like many aspects of life. I don't think it's any one given thing. There's there's so much multifacetedness to what's going on in the world that there seems to be a gray area in between a lot of interconnecting counterpoints that where the truth probably lies. And I think there's definitely a a physiological response or a physiological trigger for a lot of these things. In my own experiences, it was, I had these events at high points of stress and worry in my life. And I felt that kind of opened me up to what these experiences were. It's almost like the door was left open for something to step in or to, to mess around with me and, from my research, it seems to be a lot of other things, like you said, um, the theological response from mainstream Christianity would be it's you, you've got too much sin in your life and your sin is leaving you open, where it's probably all these things together. There's something going on in people's life, whether it's spiritually, um, physically, something that's leaving them open to it. And in my research, I've noticed that people who go on any kind of a, a sleep-assisting drug seem to be at higher risk of these things happening. They may not necessarily know it's happened because they're completely out to it. They're so deep in sleep, they they don't realize it may be happening. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you touched on that because few people do. And because I'm so prone to having this experience and I've had it for decades, even though I have a handle on it right now, I never get too cocky because it went away for 15 years once and came back. And so you never really know. I'm, you're always on your guard. But I will not take Tylenol PM, NyQuil when I'm sick. I won't take melatonin. I don't want to do anything that is going to make me even more confused or or drowsy when I'm in an altered state of consciousness. I am certainly not going to do something. You know, when you have sleep paralysis, your number one goal is to rouse yourself. And you can't do that when you've, you know, swallowed a gallon of NyQuil and, and you even if it's an over-the-counter drug, if if you're in an, any kind of an altered state and you're medicated, it just, it makes it a hundred times worse. And so that's personally something that I don't do. But exactly like you said, uh, stress can trigger it. Um, jet lag, like if, if you are in extreme exhaustion, uh, if you're sleep deprived, it, it can, it can come on. Uh, yeah trauma is a huge one 
a lot of the people that have had sleep paralysis their whole life where it started at a very, very young age are people who have been through childhood trauma. And I always tell people, a lot of people overlook this one because they're like, well, I had this great upbringing. I was raised in this Christian home, but I'm not talking, you don't have to be ritualistically or sexually abused, or you don't have to be living in a, uh, you know, a dysfunctional home where there's, you know, abuse going on. It, this can be a divorce. It can be a death of a parent. It could be like in my case where you were just exposed to uh, surgeries and hospitals and, and surgical and medical procedures. When, when you're doing that from the time you're a little kid and, you know, the hospitals, they're scary. There's doctors all around. There's strangers. Every time someone comes in the room, you're getting some needle poked in your arm and uh, you're drinking disgusting medicine and you're, you, <laughs> you leave the hospital feeling sick. And, and so I, I like to encourage people when I, when I say the word trauma, a lot of people, including myself will roll their eyes at that and say, well, I didn't go any through anything like that. And one of the reasons it took me so long to get to the bottom of why this was happening for me is I, if you had asked me, did you experience trauma growing up? I would have said, no, no way. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home and my parents got married at 19 and were married almost 50 years until my mom passed away. And it was this perfect little leave it to beaver house. And we went to church and me and my brother were best buds. And but I don't think that I realized what a physical, mental, and emotional toll all the surgeries and the hospital visits and the kids being mean at school and stuff had on me. Because, you know, when you grow up like that, you're resilient. And especially if you know and love the Lord and, you know, he gives you strength to be victorious through that stuff. I never would have thought that I had any sort of trauma as a result of that but I was very vulnerable in those years where I was scared and always anticipating the next surgery always anticipating the next kid at school that was gonna you know trip me or make fun of me or draw attention to me and when you're living in that kind of foxhole mentality all the time and just think about the people out there Drew who on a daily basis are worried about their kids are worried about their marriage are worried about their job and their income and their capacity to support their family even just wildly out of control anxiety and stress can can make us susceptible to the demon world. And, and I think that the reason why the Bible says hundreds and hundreds of times to not be anxious and not to fear, it's not just this, you know, cosmic counselor in the sky, like saying, don't worry, be happy, right? It it's It's literally the the key to having that armor on like that Teflon suit. When, when you are not filled with fear and anxiety at every moment, your, your doorways are shut and locked. I've had a theory for quite a while now, and it's, it's somewhat linked to this, especially in the spiritual warfare sense of things and being open to things and things stepping in where my experiences with the, what you would, the mainstream media or the, the general population would consider the mentally ill or the homeless that are, have suffered from schizophrenia and all, all kind of matter of mental disorders. They're people who have wrongly or rightly experienced a lot of trauma in their life. They've gone through hardships. 
And sometimes you look at these people and you can tell it's not necessarily a drug affected thing or a mental thing. It actually looks like there's someone else behind the wheel operating the person. And you get a very real guttural sense. Your gut instinct kicks in that these people may not necessarily be people behind the eyes, that they're being used as a skin suit in some situations. Absolutely. You know, schizophrenia is the number one sort of classic diagnosis in decades past for anyone that would experience sleep paralysis. And it's kind of one of those, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg sort of a thing. I don't know that if it's that schizophrenia mirrors sleep paralysis or sleep paralysis mirrors schizophrenia or both, or if it's one of those things, you know, like you can go to the doctor and you can have five or six symptoms of something. So they'll diagnose you. And then it could be a misdiagnosis because it could be five or six symptoms that are also over here on this other illness. And so what what's really frightening about the sleep paralysis thing, and we're kind of coming out of this, I think, but it used to be that if you breathe the word of this, schizophrenia was the automatic diagnosis. And even the way they still talk about sleep paralysis today, they they talk about uh, the the visualizations in in the bedroom as being hallucinations. Now, I'm an English major. I'm a word nerd, so I I pay very close attention to what words really mean. And the dictionary definition of a hallucination infers that you are seeing something that's not really there. So hallucination is sort of a politically correct way of calling someone delusional. Uh, You're seeing something that's not there. Therefore, you're crazy. Oh, you're hearing voices. Someone's telling you you're getting dragged to hell. Oh, I mean, it's this perfect shoe in for a schizophrenic diagnosis, which is unfortunate because then what do they do? They put you on highly, highly psychotropic medications that exacerbate all of the symptoms and make you more susceptible. And it sort of then becomes this, you know, chasing your tail sort of a situation. Now, what's kind of scary, if you want to kind of delve into the future, is they have now figured out a way to reproduce every aspect of the sleep paralysis phenomenon in a lab, in in a hospital room, whatever. But my question is, why? Why are you doing that? Why are you mimicking that? Now, there could be a couple reasons. If they can mimic everything, then anytime someone's having a real experience, they have something non-phenomenal to blame it on. Well, something must be pressing against that lobe of your brain. And so, you know, and then all they have to do is take an x-ray. And if they can find anything on the x-ray in that region of the brain, like, oh, that, that explains it, you know. And there's all sorts of areas in our brain or uh, muscle relaxers, even if if you have a high, like if you have an extremely strong uh, muscle inhibitor, like succinylcholine, which is what anesthesiologists um, and, and ENTs will use when they're intubating you, they'll, they'll, They'll give you these muscle relaxers. If you have a muscle relaxer, like a high-powered one, like 16-E-coline, for example, and you're not sedated, you're not given a sedative along with it, 
it mimics sleep paralysis to an amazing degree. You feel like you can't breathe. You feel like there's something sitting on your chest. You have panic. Your heart starts to race. You feel like you're going to die. And so they can, through the use of drugs, through the use of probing, um, there's a, a region of our brain where if you probe it, you'll see shadow people. So on one hand, you can say, well, why are they trying to mimic this? Are they just trying to learn about the phenomenon? Or are they just trying to use this as a way to explain away a supernatural phenomenon so that it isn't supernatural? Or uh, to get even more fantastic in, in the hypotheses, if they can recreate all of this, now you've got a situation where human beings, in addition to demons, can torment people. Now we don't even now we don't even have to just worry about um, demonic entities. And what's scary to me about human beings being able to do this is, even though the demons are evil, they are bound by the laws that are over them. And so when you say in the name of Jesus, get out. They don't like it, but they have to. They are bound to that. And they're not going to hang around because if Jesus shows up and deals with them, they don't want that. If you have human beings that are behind all these switches and controls now, and they have access and they can circumvent, you know, your your visual cortex and they can put these visualizations into your into your mind's eye and they can probe parts of your brain and you can see shadow people and you can look crazy. I mean, they can put whatever person they want in in prison, in a psych ward, on medication. They can do whatever they want if, if they can convince people that, that you're schizophrenic or that you're crazy. But the other thing that I think is even more frightening is when you're dealing with human beings, they have a free will and they have the ability to rebel and disobey. So if you say in the name of Jesus, get out to a, a military official or uh, you know, a, a warlock or a witch or something. They don't care. They, they have no fear of that. And doesn't mean that calling on the name of Jesus isn't going to help you because Jesus can help you, you know, regardless of who's at the, at the helm. But it, it's very frightening to me that on one hand, you have people gaslighting us saying there's no such thing as this. But at the same time, these same people are throwing millions of dollars into research to mimic this thing that supposedly doesn't exist so that they can just wreak further havoc. Now, this is a, a piece of speculation on my behalf, but as soon as you spoke about there being the human side of things, which is equally as terrifying, if not more, my mind mm -hmm. instantly goes to if there are elites or the shadow governments, whatever you want to call these these groups that are really running things behind the, behind the stage show and the pole, behind the curtain, could these people be under the leadership of entities that we know from biblical scripture are now without form and without body trapped in this on this realm of, on this planet who seek and eagerly want to experience the joys of having a body and they want to experience food, they want to experience orgasms, they want all the things that it is to have a flesh and a flesh body again, flesh and blood. Could it be that these entities are trading information, knowledge to these power elites, and in doing so, creating this situation where they can recreate the sleep paralysis to try and open up doorways to allow these entities to take bodies over? A absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, what's really frightening about 
being able to recreate this anytime, anywhere is it used to be that these entities had limited spaces of time uh, to attach to a human. When, when you are talking about a sleep paralysis scenario, you're talking about a matter of seconds as they're falling in and out of sleep stages. And so um, the, the classic uh, terms for sleep paralysis are hypnopompic and hypnagogic, meaning you're either in a brief altered state of consciousness as you're drifting into sleep or as you're coming out of it. So they've got a split second, you know, they've got a couple seconds to, to get their little foot in the door there before you fully wake up or you fully fall asleep. Whereas you've got 24 hours a day now, if you can simulate this, if you're no longer reliant upon altered states of consciousness. And, and that's what I think, you know, to go way off the wall here, Drew, if what they're doing with medicating half the world i i don't know what the global stats are but i know the last i looked 40 million americans are on various psychotropic medications antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds and we have this overstimulation with the blue lights and the screens and the emf and and the chemtrails and all the conspiracies right but with the 5g with everything going on interacting negatively with all of the energy and radiation and and things coming off of our brains uh and you've got all the frequencies and the music and and everything i just think that there's a point where they are sort of tuning into a frequency of the human brain and the human body where we are sort of in a quasi altered state of consciousness at all times. So the door is always open. We're open 24 hours now. And if they can get people to start seeing the shadow man and all of these phenomenons while they're wide awake, if you're looking at this sort of as an Overton window scenario where they're trying to slowly bring us into a new reality, if people start seeing these things, seeing and interacting with demonic or alien beings in their waking, eventually what's going to happen over time is people are going to get over the fear. They're going to get used to it. They're going to get accustomed to it. And then eventually they're going to realize the same thing that that was realized in Noah's day. These things have knowledge. These things have information. These things have solutions to our problems. Uh, these things have the cure for cancer. Uh, these things have the cure for prolonged life. And so part of, I think, what they're doing here with the, with the research into uh, all of these recreation of these supernatural phenomenons is so that the dream world sort of comes into into reality reality will turn into this sort of permanent dream world virtual reality astral plane metaverse whatever you want to call it um and and i know that this sounds very science fiction but the fact of the matter is 
they got in big trouble for coming down to our world. And so they had to come up with a way to forward their agenda without getting in trouble by coming down Mount Hermon again, right? So what they're trying to do with all of this technology and all of this virtual reality and all of this titillating, you know, transhumanism stuff is, I think they're trying to convince us to climb up Mount Hermon and basically meet them on their own turf. Then they can continue their education program. They can continue giving us all of the knowledge and the the secret mysteries of heaven and all that. But now I think that they feel like they found a loophole. Now they're not culpable because they didn't come down here and force this on us. We came up because we wanted it. See, now we are culpable because we have willingly desired this. And we do desire this as a human race. And it even says in the book of Enoch that the, the watchers taught men this knowledge and men wished to learn it. And so we are culpable in this, but that's where I think Christians in particular can get into trouble because in our mystical experiences, these entities are smart enough to create a virtual reality that mimics our concept of heaven and angels and the Holy Spirit. And so we think it's spiritual and we are like Paul and Moses and Elijah and we're being invited into heaven and God is giving. And so if we don't know how to properly test these spirits, we are going to inadvertently make the same mistake that the angels did in that we are going to leave our first estate. And I think that that's ultimately what they're trying to do. They're trying to get us to believe that the grass is greener on the other side because they believed at one time that it was. And they're, they're trying to get us to basically fall for the same, the same mistake that they made. But to your point, Drew, I absolutely believe that they are highly, highly motivated to reobtain bodies. They, they do not enjoy being disembodied. And that is the only reason they have any desire to interact with us whatsoever. And I feel brokenhearted for the new agers who are being duped into thinking that these things think that they're special or that they have some sort of a gift or a purpose when they are just using these people. A lot of the people that get into new age are highly creative, intelligent, empathetic individuals with strong giftings. And they are being duped into thinking that they are doing something good for the world when they are really just going to be tread under the cannon wheels of the the new system. It's it's what I've seen is that it's almost as if the modern world has been generationally primed for this as well. You look at something as simple as entertainment and science fiction. We've been drilled since the 50s, the early 50s, that there's going to be an alien attack on Earth. The bad aliens come in. Either we unite as a planet and, and defend ourselves and beat the aliens, and then there's this wonderful situation where we're all all together as one planet. And then there's the other take on it where we look at the situation of the good aliens come in at, the, at the end to save us. We're on our knees and the bad aliens have taken over, but then the good aliens arrive and the good aliens bring 
gifts of technology and life advancement and cure all diseases. I think that's what they're priming us for. And to have it so popular amongst what you consider pop culture and media today, it seems that everything's bathed in it. It's in books, it's on television, it's in movies. And I think that's definitely been done for a reason. And if there is that human aspect of this where they're trying to make people more susceptible to being open through pharmaceuticals, through um, bathed in EMF radiation, all these things, it's almost like they're getting ready to flip a switch, like you said, one day where the veil is opened and we all see in their waking moments these things that are existing around us out of our phase or our dimension. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting too, you know, you mentioned all the predictive programming since the 50s and, you know, this the space race and the, everything going on in the 80s and um, the sci-fi stuff and just the massive impact like that Star Wars has had on our culture. And I even think that that is creeping into the church, like even the way we are thinking about our um, our religion and our politics is so based on this good force, bad force, good guy, bad guy, you know, thing. And I just think it's so much more complex than that. There's so many more layers. There's not just two colors of lightsabers here. And I think that that's all part of the duality. That's all part of this, this Masonic idea that everything is a free choice, but it's between these two things. And we don't live in a world where there's only two options, you know, and I even look at even look at the Red Sea. Moses was thinking like a good dualistic human being, right? <laughs> um, we can drown in the Red Sea or we can be killed by the Egyptians. So even back then, humanity is is imprisoned in these mindsets that there's an option A and B. And we do it in religion and we do it in politics, especially here in America. You know, you've got the Democrats or the Republicans. And there are so many more layers to the possibilities uh, of what we can believe and what we can do than, than just A or B, especially when A and B are both being offered to us by the same, you know, person. <laughs> it's going <laughs> to, A and path A and path B lead ultimately to the same Hotel California, right? So, um, but what's interesting... What's interesting to me about the the sci-fi movies is back in the 50s and even when I was a kid, even in the 70s, those sci-fi movies, if there was a robot or there was an alien, they were bad guys. They came to planet Earth for nefarious purposes. Uh, we had to fight against them. They were trying to kill us. They were they were bad. And that was probably a reflection of the times and what we believed then. But, you know, fast forward now, 30, 40 years. And now we've got movies like even just look at the bait and switch in the Terminator franchise. We went from John Connor being the Messiah to him being the Antichrist and he had to be killed. Right. I mean, talk about a bait and switch. And what what I'm seeing not even just in the science fiction movies, but in the Nephilim 2.0 movies, which is what I would call the DC and the Marvel universe, <laughs> is you've got these you've got these watchers, these titans from other planets coming down, um, but they they've got hum, human bodies, but they're superpowers. They're the good guys. They've come to fight for you know truth in the American way and all this stuff. 
And what people don't understand is those, those superheroes are the Titans. They're the watchers. If you even etymologically go back and figure out what the word hero originally meant in the languages, it, they're the Titans. They're the watchers. They're the bad guys. And so what people don't understand is this is an aberrant gospel that's being preached. These things are coming to save humanity from the oppression of Jesus Christ, who wants to take away your free will and all of, you know, you can be your own God. But this guy's going to come and set up this little narrow minded kingdom where you have to worship him. That's what Superman and Spider-Man and all those guys are coming to save us from. That's the, that's the gospel in those movies. And so what's scary is if, if an alien invasion had happened in the 50s, 60s, or 70s, we would have been smart enough to have gotten out the 50 cals. What's going to happen now is these superheroes are going to land. And they are going to be as gods. They're going to be beautiful. They're going to be powerful. And we are going to worship them. And that that's what's scary to me is we don't even have enough sense anymore to be afraid of these things. And, you know, unfortunately, when we think about the Bible, we think of everything as just so old fashioned and just guys running around in skirts talking in British accents. But when, when John said, test every spirit to see whether it's from God, he wasn't just talking about televangelists and, you know, Jehovah witnesses that show up at the door. He is talking about beautiful celebrities who smooth talk and all of these celebrities now who are on social media talking about how much they love God and how they've been saved. And I'm not saying they're all fake, but what I'm saying is just because someone is beautiful, rich, and funny, they're mesmerizing, but we're not testing all the stuff that we're seeing on social media. We're not testing the movies. We're not testing things that we think are fiction. And I just think we're going to be caught off guard. And when it says in scripture that even the elect are going to fall for this, if that were possible. In other words, the way I read that is if Jesus doesn't come down and tap us on the shoulder and go, hey, dummy, if he doesn't do that, we're going to fall for it, too. And that's how good of a lie it's going to be. And so. I just think we have to get better at testing the spirits and recognizing that not every spirit has a red tail and a pitchfork or is a demon or looks like Freddy Krueger. These spirits that are the wolves in sheep's clothing, just like Lucifer, their predecessor, is going to be angels of light. They're going to be beautiful. They're going to be sexy. They're going to be alluring. They're going to be hilarious. They're going to be able to relate to humanity. They're going to come in and drain the swamp and cure cancer and give the, the poor middle-class people high-paying jobs again. And they're, they're going to save us from socialism. They're going to save us from the liberals. And I just think any savior that shows up that doesn't have the credentials of scars in his wrists and his side should should not be trusted there is not a human being 
that is going to be more of a sufficient deliverer to us than Jesus Christ. It's interesting how you spoke about the Marvel and the DC and how it's such a big push on what's happening in the world. We've seen Marvel movies nonstop for nearly 10 plus years now. But yep. it's interesting how you mentioned everything's in black and white. I've noticed that within that that scope of comic books and films, they've pivoted away from the light beating the dark and they've gone to the gray area. They've pushed the idea that in order to do good things, you can do to be a good person, you can do terrible things. The anti-hero became the big flavor of the month where you see characters like Deadpool and Black Adam. Essentially, they're people who started off as human and were gifted extraordinary powers like the gods and they do horrible things. And it's almost sending the message out to society that you can do these horrible things as long as you're doing it for the right reasons. And that's a dangerous thing in itself. But I'd like to get onto my experiences and get your insights, if that's all right. Absolutely. So I experienced sleep paralysis throughout my 20s. Uh, They ended in my late 20s. But there's two other events which I'd like your insight on to whether you think they're actually interconnected or not. It all kind of started off when I was a little kid or been four or five years of age. My dad bought a restoration car. He bought a 1970s Ford Falcon and he sat it up the back of our property. And I was always afraid of this car. I wouldn't go anywhere near it. I'd, I'd kick and scream if we went for a walk past it. And my mum eventually sat me down one day and said, you know, why are you so scared of the car? What's going on? And I told her that the old man with the big head was watching me. And she said, mm. okay, can you draw this man for me? And what was drawn was a stereotypical grey alien was sitting in the front seat of this car. Fast fast forward um, 18 years off to my 18th birthday, my family's going through the photo album to get photos ready for the, my party. And they found a photo of that Ford Falcon. And within the front seat, there's a semi-transparent shadowy figure with almond-shaped eyes sitting there. Wow. Wow. So as a child, I I was seeing something. I was deathly afraid of it. And years later, we found some kind of evidence in a photo. That was one event. Jump forward to I was 23, 24. I was driving home down a country highway. I'm in regional Australia. And there was a huge, big bright light behind me. And being the area, I naturally thought it was a couple of young guys with a four-wheel drive with their driving lights on, very bright. The light kept getting closer and closer. And I started to develop a headache. As the light passed the car, I noticed it wasn't a four-wheel drive. It was an orb. My car shut down instantly. And then as soon as it passed off, it disappeared down the highway, out of sight. My car started again. I had this killer headache. And when I got home, I'd realized I was actually missing an hour of time. So I was just, what, about, to, I was just about to ask you that. So what would have been a, a, normally a 40-minute drive ended up being an hour and a half. And my car shut down as a result. So those were two big events. Um, yeah, yeah. And then my 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 sleep paralysis experience was always around. It was times in my life where I was stressed out. I was worried. At one point, I was working four jobs to get by, put myself through university, and it was always a point of physical exhaustion and stress that brought it on. And it would always tend to be that dark figure in the room. Like the room is black. There's no lights. There's no outside lights coming in. But there was still that blacker than black shape of a human in the corner of the room watching me. And it got to the point where it was so often I was kind of desensitized to it. It happened all the time. And it'd just be that air quotes waking moment where my body's completely paralyzed. 
I have that extreme sense of fear and I could see something in the room. Eventually that manifested into an event on my, in the, my 20, when I was 27, the end of my twenties, where I woke up to two figures next to me beside the bed, talking to each other, asking each other how they were going to lift me and get me off the bed to the point where I physically felt hands go underneath me, which was very odd because the sheet was still over me. I could feel hands underneath me trying to lift me. And in my head, all I could think of is I've got to wake up. I've got to fight these things off. I've got to hit them. I've got to punch them. I've got to do something. And as I was thinking that in my mind, they stopped, looked at each other and said, he knows we're here. And they stopped and disappeared. And ever since that time, I've not had sleep paralysis again. Mm. Wow. 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 Where do I even start with this? So I have heard some of these things before. And it's, it is really fascinating to me. This tends to happen with the people who experience the aliens or witches or warlocks, like humans. Sleep paralysis, like, here's how I kind of differentiate the two, because the alien abduction kind of things, that can happen during a sleep paralysis experience, but it can also happen in broad daylight and driving down the street and, you know, the proverbial, you know, through the cornfield kind of thing right uh i don't ever hear people with the classic sleep paralysis talking about this when when you realize you're having sleep paralysis and you recognize and you see those demons they tend to kind of get off on that they they're totally fine with being sighted and they're not shocked when when you see them what's interesting to me about whether it's like a witch like because people in the occult know how to astral project into people's rooms. Like they know how to do that. Uh, I, I spoke to another man where he had some neighbors that were practicing the occult and he knew that they, he was on their list of targets. And one night he woke up in a sleep paralysis state and he started quoting scripture in his mind. And there, there was two of them talking over him, just like you said. And they said, he's quoting scripture. Let's get out of here. And they, they left. And so it's interesting to me with the greys that they always seem like they're going to get in trouble with somebody if they're busted. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I don't know if that's like an authority thing. It seems strange to me how many of these alien greys, when they're described, are described as kind of like bumbling the job. <laughs> they're like the so, oompa of the, the spiritual warfare realm, aren't they? <laughs> Exactly. So, but what fascinates me and I guess kind of terrifies me about those types of stories too, Drew, what's, what's insightful to me about it is that means that for every time they're getting busted, there's times that they're not getting busted. So what's, what's happening, you know, and Where my research has taken me recently, and it's going to sound like I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but I'm I'm going to come back full circle. The reason why I now believe that sleep paralysis and these UFO abductions are more closely related than I've ever thought before is because I believe that they are both abduction scenarios. Now, I think that the abductees are being taken to different places for different reasons, but what I think is happening with these sleep paralysis 
sufferers, of which I include myself. And I, I don't mean every single time, but the ones that are getting taken over and over and over and over again over the course of decades is when we wake up in our bedrooms and we can't move, we're terrified, we're crying out to Jesus, our heart is beating, we feel like we can't breathe, we feel like something's sitting on us. I have come to believe that that is the end of the sleep paralysis scenario. We are coming back into our bodies from the astral realm. Like the UFO abductees, we have no memory of what has happened to us, but our body is exhibiting all of the physiological side effects of a massive fight or flight adrenaline reaction. Our heart is beating, our saliva is all dried up. Our brain cannot tell us why we are in this state of fear, but our body is giving all of the clear red flags that we have just experienced some massive bit of trauma. Where sleep paralysis sufferers get into trouble is they don't have the benefit of missing time to tip them off that something happened. Because when we wake up in the morning, there's always missing time and we don't give it a second thought. So all that to say with your experience is I think that the ultimate goal of both of these experiences is to surreptitiously abduct human beings for whatever their purpose is. Now, from, the, from all of the stories we've heard about the UFO abductees, they tend to always talk about medical experiments, laboratories, operating tables, you know, the taking of sperm and semen and eggs and pregnancies. And it seems to be sort of a physiological medical wing of, of this agenda. What I find with a lot of the sleep paralysis who get pulled into the astral, that's more of a re-education classroom kind of scenario. Here you've got the Helena Blavatsky's, the H.P. Lovecraft's, the Frank Baum's, the Galen, you know, the second century super surgeon. What you have here is people that begin to learn all of the various aspects of theosophy, and they then use their giftings in the physical realm to promote this agenda. So if you're a scientist, if you're a physician, if you're a literary, you know, if you're, if you're a musician, if you are a philosopher, you are now preaching in the mainstream these theosophical new age ideas. And what, what the goal I think of that operation is, is to take these very articulate, creative, empathetic, gifted human beings and use them as the sales and marketing wing for your agenda. You're the ones that are going to write the movies and the, and the stories that lets everybody on planet earth know that we're friendly. We're okay. We're going to make the world a better place. You're going to be enlightened. Um, and, and we see that so many of the people from the, the 19th and 20th century that are still a significant influence on our uh, education systems and writing the curriculum, philosophy, religion, art, literature, science, medicine, 
these were card carrying astral projectors who will it's on record that they went into the astral, that they got their ideas and dream renderings, uh, that they had ascended masters, that they did automatic writing. And so it, it's not a secret, you know, this is, it's out in the open. And so I, I think that they have different departments, you know, and the, the UFO abductees, for whatever reason, those weird, silly little alien greys are, are part of you know, they're, they're the candy stripers, you know, they're the little volunteers that do all the medical stuff. Right. Um, and that's not to make light on it because it, if I had to be abducted by an alien or have a, have an astral project, I, I wouldn't pick, I, I know people who've gone through these UFO uh, abduction scenarios and it is traumatizing their, their lives and what they go through and um, just the isolation, especially in the past, because no one understands. And it's not the kind of thing you can ever really talk about. But these are people that have physically uh, been altered and chipped and lost babies and horrible, horrible things. So I don't mean to make light of it. And I don't want it to be taken that way. But uh, what's interesting to me about your story is that your only vague memory as a child is this car. And it's so fantastic that that was corroborated for you with that picture. Cause there's a lot of people that have a hazy memory and they'll never put two and two together and they'll never have photographic evidence of it. So they'll just never put their finger on it. But when, when I hear a story where it started in childhood and these things have followed you through your whole life and the 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 memories get clearer as you get older it does make me wonder what the source of that was was it something on the land was it something in that car was it something ancestral um and i think what's so tricky about these things is it can go latent for so many years that I think that for a lot of us, we feel like I schnockered that. I prayed this prayer and I never had sleep paralysis ever again. But what we're doing is we're not necessarily connecting all of the dots of things that are happening in reality. Uh, we look at it like, well, I've never had sleep paralysis again. Therefore, I'm OK. I'm in the clear. And so a lot of times there's vestiges and invisible tentacles still attached and especially as we become more savvy and if we are on to them and we start to know now what certain things feel like and look like uh, a lot of people with sleep paralysis become proficient lucid dreamers and i don't mean that in the sense of um there's lucid dreamers that use it to reality shift and to go into the astral realm and experience astral sex and all this stuff all I mean by lucid dreaming is you're aware of the fact when you're asleep that you're asleep. And a lot of people with sleep paralysis, they will use that to their advantage. I am asleep. I need to wake myself up. Uh, I'm constantly in my dreams if someone's chasing me. Um, I need a car right now. You know, and you, you do things and so that you can escape and whatnot. So all this to say that as we become more savvy, so do they. And so a lot of times I think we think that we've shaken it, but they've literally just buried themselves deeper. You know, it's like a video game where it gets more and more and more difficult as you progress through it and the the enemies become invisible. And so 
what I always suggest, and I do have an appendix in the back of my book that walks people through this is I call it a prayer mapping exercise. It, it's, it's a, a journaling exercise. Um, Russ Dizdar, you know, used to teach this. It has been so effective for so many people I've talked to as well as myself. And that is just this way of just praying to the source uh, what is the source and to not just look for the obvious things. Everybody thinks it, it's so funny when people write to me, they kind of have this obligatory paragraph where they confess all their sins. And everybody thinks that this happens to them because they smoked pot in college or they played with a Ouija board at a slumber party. Like everybody's kind of got to get their Ouija board marijuana stories off their chest. I mean, it's just, it's kind of funny, but um, the fact is that the source can be, something you'd never think. And, and the source doesn't even always have to be something that we would think is deleterious or sinful. Um, I, I've had my own experiences with um, fear, anxiety, um, bitterness. If you have a grudge of unforgiveness against someone, anything can be a foothold. Uh, some people have talked about invisible friends which ended up becoming vessels for, for these things. Uh, so don't always think that, that the source has to be something like you killed the guy, you know, I mean, it can be something that seemingly innocuous, but uh, I, I think with you, what I would suggest is just you, just you pray until the spirit of God reveals the source, you know, and, um, I'll just tell you a, a, a recent story. I, I was talking to someone and they told me their whole story and I was praying the whole time because, you know, when you're talking to someone you've never talked to before, you don't know their family history. You don't, you don't know anything. And I had in my mind what I was going to say first. And when it was my turn to talk, I don't even know why I said it, but I said, do you have any Scottish Freemasons in your family? I've never asked that question to anyone before in my life, but it just, it, it came blurting out. And it was just, it was of God, Drew, because there was dead silence on the phone for quite some time. And he told me every single male member of my family still lives in Scotland and every single one of them are 32nd degree Scottish Freemasons. He's like, is that a problem? <laughs> you know, and so um, it, it it can be so many different things. And so what's intriguing to me about your story is that you have a couple vague memories of that car. But like so many people that have had the UFO experience, it's one brief, hazy little memory that is all that's retained left in their mind. But there, that's usually the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more looming under the water. And I'm just wondering if you explored that in prayer and if you prayed for the source. Uh, the reason why the source is important, I don't think recovering every single memory is important. And I think that that can be needlessly traumatizing. But the reason why the source is important is 
if I decide I don't want 5,000 dandelions in my front yard, so I go out with a, a pair of scissors and I chop all the little yellow heads off, um, they're all going to grow back up next year. You have to dig down to the root if you really want it to not grow back. And so if we keep confessing the Ouija board we played with at the slumber party over and over and over again, and that has nothing to do with it. Um, and the source is really some coworker we had once who was in the occult and hated us because we got the job promotion and they hexed us. We're, we're going to just be chasing our tail. And, and I think that's also important to, for a lot of people to understand. I think a lot of people don't really want to delve into the source because we're always so afraid that it's going to be something that we did wrong or, or something in our life that we're going to have to give up or do differently, or it's going to be hard work. And it's not always that way. Especially when this kind of stuff starts happening to us in childhood. Obviously, when you're three, four, five years old, you're not dabbling in the occult and <laughs> sleeping around <laughs> and smoking pot, right? So, so, um, these things are very subtle. And especially when we're young, if it happens to us when we're so young that we're kind of still in that age of innocence, a lot of times it is a parent or a grandparent or some sort of an authority figure or, an ancestor, or it could be something tied to uh, the land that we're li that we live on, and and things like that. So, I think that if I were you, I would just I wouldn't necessarily pray that all the memories get recouped, but I would pray for the source so that you can tie that loose end up, and just ask the spirit of God to reveal to you any of the details that you need to remember, uh, not for the not for the sake of titillation and telling a good campfire story, but for the sake of you and your progeny after you to not be legally bound to these things that they may be bound to. Because I'm I'm not so sure about the UFO stuff, Drew, but I know with the with the sleep paralysis stuff, what's happening to a lot of people is what's happening in the astral realm that they're not remembering when they wake up is they're making covenants and oaths with these things and that's why a lot of christians will say i don't get it i i'm born again i love the lord i live this moral life i go to church i've been on mission trips i'm in the word every day i i and they can't understand why there's no victory in their life over sin or they don't understand why don't i have genuine affections for Christ. Like I love him and I serve him, but like, why is there an emotional disconnect? And sometimes that can be a sign that there is some sort of potential legality that needs to be broken. And I want to make it abundantly clear. This doesn't mean you're not saved and you're going to hell. And I'm talking from experience. I I've been a Christian my entire life. I, I don't even remember when I prayed to receive Christ. I found it in my mom's journal. I, I was like three years old. I, I don't even remember praying the prayer. And I've always walked with the Lord. I've never been a rebellious party person. I've always been moral. But I struggled my entire life with trying to have an emotional connection with Christ and to have affections for him and I always just thought, well, it's because I got bullied. And um, so I guess I'm just wounded or whatever. I just chalked it all off to that. But 
when I really started researching for this book and stumbling upon the the threshold covenants and how a lot of these uh, astral entities are vampiric in in nature, I realized that these threshold covenants that we make with these things and the invitation can be through fear. It can it can be through sin, but it can be through fear. It can be through trauma, through unhealed wounds, grudges, bitterness, whatever, that it's they're almost like marriage contracts that have to be broken. And the the beautiful thing, and I think this is one of the metaphors that's being missed, is when when you when you watch a horror movie, the, the vampire code, right, is that a vampire can't come into your home unless you invite it in. And once it crosses the threshold, you've given it permission basically to, to bother you. And the only way you can get out of that that covenant with a vampiric entity is you die or the ownership of the home changes hands. And that's really what salvation is. You know, when, when Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door and lets me in, then I'll come in. And so now you have Jesus stepping over that threshold. And what's amazing about entering into a threshold covenant with Jesus Christ, which is very synonymous with the betrothal covenant, which gets into all of the bride, bridegroom, bride of Christ kind of analogies in scripture. Once Jesus enters over your threshold and you've permitted that spiritual being into your domain, what's happening there is a transfer of the deed. This is what breaks the vampiric code. You have now given the deed of your heart over to Jesus. Jesus doesn't want control of your life because he's a control freak or he wants to usurp your free will. He wants control of the deed of our hearts so that all other previous threshold and betrothal contracts are null and void because when the owner of the home dies uh those covenants all break and so all of this analogy all the stuff you see in scripture that just seems like simple-minded and seems like sunday school stuff and just seems like what's with all this like betrothal language and bride of christ and this is weird but it all has to do it's all covenant language and and so the reason why I encourage people to find the source is because you want any of those covenants that may have been made in the astral or in these altered states of consciousness unwittingly, you want all of those contracts and covenants broken. And I know it doesn't seem fair. Well, how can they trick us into this? That That shouldn't stand. But you know, you go all the way back to the garden. The only way the enemy knows how to get human beings entangled into these contracts is to seduce them or trick them or deceive them. And so we know from Adam and Eve, unfortunately, that even though they were tricked, they were still held accountable for, for what they did. So um, I think it's important to not get too wrapped up in how fair we think it is and to just assume that whether it's fair or not, if I am legally bound in some sort of contract with with an entity, I'm going to pray to the source of that. And it's just very important. I know I've already said it, but I just want to stress it because a lot of deliverance ministries and ministries that work with satanically, ritually abused survivors, 
there is a huge difference between recovering every horrible, awful, destructive, traumatic memory of every evil, horrible thing that's ever happened to you. I don't think that you need to remember everything to be healed. And so in a healing journey, the, the, the goal is to find the source and break off every covenant. It's not to remember every horrible thing that happened. Well, it can be traumatic in itself, just reliving those memories and, and mm-hmm. uncovering memories that you may not have actually uh, taken on board or you've been, you've put away in your subconscious. I've got a yeah. question for you in regards to your research. It's often said that when people start to deep dive into these types of subjects and they start to learn about dark entities and that, and the spiritual warfare that simply by just acknowledging the existence of these things that can open you up to spiritual attack. Have you had any kind of a pushback in regards to this type of thing throughout your research? You know, not really. I, I expected to be clobbered drew. And because of that, I ha- I got a prayer team. I have, I have seven day prayer coverage um, of people praying for me every day who've been praying for me for the last three and a half years. And so I took it very seriously. I, I expected to be clobbered and I, I don't know if I didn't get clobbered because I had the prayer team or, or, or what, but interestingly, I started this research back in 20. Well, I, I started a, a lot there in 2013. I went back to the research. My mom had just died at that point and my sleep paralysis had come back big time. I was so susceptible with all the grief and everything else going on. I had a really stressful job at the time, et cetera, et cetera. And I was delving into it because there was more available now on the internet than before. People were starting to talk about it more. And I very clearly started getting all sorts of paranormal and supernatural. And it wasn't even just sleep paralysis. I was starting to get, um, I would be wide awake, just, you know, sitting cross-legged on my, my bed with the TV on, like, you know, doing a craft project or whatever. And I would, see things under the covers like moving and it are just terrifying things and I, I saw a, a bright on fire orb in my dining room wide awake and I can't even tell people about this because no matter how much I stress it the first question is well are you sure you want to sleep and I'm like oh yeah I'm sure <laughs> sleep but but anyway so at that time I really felt the spirit of God clearly tell me do not look into this again. Stop looking into this. This is not the time. And it wasn't the time I was so vulnerable. And I think it was, it was six years before I took up the research again. And so I do think, and I'm glad you brought it up. This is not a topic of research for everyone, unless you've been called And unless you have a God glorifying purpose, like the purpose of of studying this would be to glorify God, to expose the deeds of the devil and to set captives free. And uh, one of the reasons I set up the book the way that I did after every chapter, there's a page of warfare points and a closing prayer. And it's an attempt to cleanse the palate, so to speak, after every chapter, like do not even go on to the next chapter until you've worked through these warfare points and you've prayed these things over I've told people, if you don't experience sleep paralysis or know someone who does, or you're not a counselor, if you're just reading this to be titillated, do not read it. You can get yourself into trouble. It can open doors. This is not something that we research because we think it's going to get a lot of hits or it's going to be like, you know, 
make us internet famous or something. And uh, I, I don't know, like right now I I've been, I've been very fortunate. I've been protected. I have a wonderful prayer team and I believe that I've had a calling on my life from day one. I've always wanted to minister to the brokenhearted. And so I do a lot of work now with SRA survivors and with people who suffer from sleep paralysis and UFO abductions. I have a heart for people who are being lured into the new age. Um, and so I, I believe that there is a calling on my life for these particular people. This is the, the mission field that I feel led to go to. But I absolutely agree with you that if this is something that's stemming for you out of a, I've always loved horror movies or, oh, this is, you know, I, I've talked to a few people, Drew, who have said, I've never had sleep paralysis, but, oh, but I wish I could just like, they're, they're titillated by it. They want to know what it's like. And uh, you don't want to know what it's like. If, if you're one of those people, let me tell you why you don't want to know what it's like. Long after the goosebumps go away and you tell a couple people around the water cooler and they go, oh, cool. You don't understand that when you when you encounter these entities in the astral realm or whether it's through a UFO abduction or an astral abduction, there are attachments. If you don't know what's happened and you don't do the proper cleansing warfare afterwards, there are attachments that follow you in the physical realm that you're not necessarily ever going to connect to that experience. And you're not necessarily going to know that the marriage problems you have or uh, the the stuff that your kids are doing, in, you know, in their room late at night that you don't know about that's going to come to bite them when they're older. You, you just don't know what kind of doors it's going to open. And I think too many people think, that the only way to detect whether something's attached to them or not is if there's paranormal activity going on in their house. And uh, these things are way more clever than that. They're not going to give themselves away at, at every opportunity. And so for those of you who think secretly that this might be kind of cool to see a demon or, or whatever, um, once you see one of those things, you just talk to any of the people who have ever had an abductee experience it follows you in various ways for the rest of your life. Uh, so these people that go crawling around area 51 with their cameras and I, it's just a foolish thing to do. So for the listeners, I know you've covered it and the importance of finding the source. If you are an experiencer and helping unpack what's happened to you, but if there was any other arrow in our quiver of protections that you, you could suggest for people, what would that be? Absolutely. The best time to armor up for this experience is during the waking hours when you're sober-minded and vigilant. If you think that you are going to be prepared to fight half asleep and terrified, how we get our armor for this is all throughout the day. And so if this is something that's happening to you, Really take an inventory of your life and your day and where your time is spent. And prayer, being in the word, having the word memorized, spending. It's not about 
checking things off of a to-do list so you feel like you're a good Christian. It has to do with really intimacy with with Christ. It, it's more than just I go to church, I do my duty. And so one of the things that I I tell people, and it's really been a game changer for me, is I got to a point where instead of thinking that the most important thing was how to get rid of the sleep paralysis, I stumbled upon an obscure verse in Song of Solomon. I think it's chapter five, verse two. And it's talking about the bride and she is in the bridal chamber. And it says that the, that the bride was asleep, but her heart was awake. And the bridegroom came to the door to have intimacy with her. And because she was in this sort of paralyzed, I don't know if I'm awake, asleep, quasi altered state of consciousness, she didn't get up and answer the door because she was just in this haze, you know? And what I've come to realize is I think that these shadow people and these things that come into our rooms when we're having sleep paralysis, you know, we always say, oh, they're shadow people or they're demons or whatever. But I think more realistically what they are is they're anti-bridegrooms. I think that it's the proverbial wolf dressed up like grandma knocking at the door. They are imitating Jesus Christ as the bride. They're knocking on the door, not on the front door, like all the pictures in Revelation 3.20 depict. They're, he's actually knocking on the inner chamber door, which is called the Tamian chamber. And so when, when, when the, when the bridegroom goes away to prepare a place for the bride, and we see that language with Jesus, um, I go to prepare a place for you. That's bridegroom language. They would, they, the Semitic people, they'll, they'll get engaged. And the, the bridegroom will go and prepare a home, this, this chupa, this wedding tent. And he will carry her over the threshold once they get married into, you know, his home. But there's an inner chamber. There's a second door. <clears throat> and the second door is where the bride goes and she shuts herself up back there to prepare herself for, you know, the consummation. And the bridegroom is not allowed back there until the bride says she's ready. So he'll keep coming and knocking and saying, are you ready? And she'll say, not yet, not yet. She's beautifying herself. And obviously anticipation is growing on both sides of the door. And he will continue to knock until she says, you can come in, I'm ready. That's what Revelation 3.20 is about. This isn't Jesus coming in the middle of the night because, you know, he needs a cup of sugar because he's baking <laughs> muffins and all this stuff, right? He is knocking on the Tamian chamber. And these sleep paralysis entities are coming. And that is why so many people with sleep paralysis, even though they don't want to admit it, there's a sexual component to it. Because this is a wedding chamber that they're barging into. They're coming into your bedroom at night. That's a place of intimacy. That's a place of privacy. That's a place of nakedness. That's a place, you know, um, of that's, that's an inner chamber. And they are barging in because a thief and a liar comes in by some other way. 
and they're barging in. And instead of a consummation, it is a violation. It is an assault. And that it, it is a bastardization of the gospel story of the bridegroom coming to lovingly have intimacy with the bride. And so what I'm saying in all that is <clears throat> if we really, truly are longing for Christ to come back. Anyone can be a Christian. Anyone can go to church. Anyone can go on a missions trip. What I'm talking about is, are we on the other side of that Tamian chamber door with growing anticipation? And so what was a game changer for me to, to answer your question, Drew, we can pray. There's all sorts of stuff we can do to stop sleep paralysis. And, you know, we can put on our armor and we can say in the name of Jesus, get out. And we can, we can do all this stuff. But what really was the game changer for me was when I stopped caring about how to get the sleep paralysis to stop. And I started caring about wanting the real bridegroom to come to me at night. And I'm not talking about you know, being whisked up into heaven and having, you know, courts of heaven experiences. And, and I'm not talking about paranormal stuff where Jesus has to show himself. I'm not talking about anything sexual, but what I'm saying is if our time of sleeping is a, is a time of rest and, and restoration, if it's a time of deep peace, if it's a time where in some way during those altered states of consciousness where the veil between the spiritual realm and the terrestrial realm are thinner. I want that to be a time where I experience the presence of Christ. And I want that to attach to me and come into the physical. That's what I want to carry around with me in the waking hours is, is a small memory of that joy that I felt in total rest and, and repose when I was asleep and I felt for a glimmer of a moment, the presence of Christ. And so I think that if that's truly what we're longing for, and that's what's on our mind as we're going to bed, and that's what the, what's in our prayers, that Christ is going to beat those other things to the door. And that's where we have to really be honest with ourselves, because even those of us that love the Lord and even those of us that are Christians if we spend the last four or five hours of our night parked in front of a TV, watching a bunch of stupid Nephilim gospel movies and video games and feeding the flesh and all of our appetites and stuff in our face with food, we're not going to go to bed with any sort. We're not going to shift gears and go to bed and all of a sudden want intimacy with, with Jesus. So those are some of the things that we need to do. Um, and it, it, that sort of preparation needs to start happening um, way before 10 minutes before we go to bed. Fantastic advice. And what a great way to finish it on a positive note. Thank you, Vicky. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. I can't wait to get a hold of your book and sink my teeth into it to further understand my own experiences. But for the listeners, where can we find your fantastic work? You can find the book, They Only Come Out at Night, Exposing the Dark Weapon of Sleep Paralysis, exclusively on lamarzuli.net. Or you can go to my website, vickijoyanderson.com. You can contact me there. Or if you click on the book, that'll take you directly to LA's website. 
And then you can find me on Instagram at Vicky Joy Author. Awesome. Fantastic. This has been a great conversation. I hope all of you guys enjoy it. Like Vicky said, if this is something you haven't experienced yourself, it's heavily advised you don't try to seek it out because they're not the best of experiences, everyone. Thank you for listening. Catch you next time. Hey, everybody. It's closing time. You don't got to go home, but you can't stay here.